From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. Sometimes people ask me how we pick guests for the show. And I tell them that the Jesuit network is so huge that we'll never run out of interesting conversation partners. Sometimes, though, I come across someone outside of a Jesuit context whose work I love and who I wish I could ask on the show. If they only had a Jesuit connection, I say to myself. But then in some rare occasions, when I look into this great person who's not connected to the Jesuits, I discover they do indeed have a connection. And that was the case with today's guest, the author and University of Michigan professor Phil Christman. Phil is the author of two great books of essays, which are titled How to Be Normal and Midwestern Futures. He also writes a Substack newsletter called The Tourist and contributes frequently to Commonweal. And I just found out he got his master's degree at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and there was the Jesuit connection I needed. Phil's essays are funny, sharp, clear, complex, and always original. He weaves together elements of memoir, theology, pop culture, and literary criticism, and more. My most common reaction when reading Phil Chrisman, beyond marveling at his curiosity and his mastery of the essay form, is to sit back and think, well, I've never thought about that topic in that way before. One of my favorite essays of Phil's is from his book, How to Be Normal, and it's titled How to Be Religious. He's an observant Christian in a largely secular milieu, and Phil writes about faith in an incredibly compelling way. We talked about the essay and the nature of religious faith. And then I asked him about teaching English composition in the age of chat GPT and why he left Twitter after years of being an active user. And I'll tell you, soon after we had this conversation, I deleted the Twitter app from my phone and haven't looked back. As I said earlier, Phil knows how to craft an effective argument. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Phil Chrisman, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. No, I'm a big fan and excited to talk to you and wanted to start by talking about one of your essays from your book of essays, How to Be Normal. And this is from the essay, How to Be Religious, um, Faith. You have two essays on how to be religious and this, the first one in the book. So I'm going to read to you a line and then ask you about it. I am not certain of the words I say every Sunday in church. I try to believe them, to act as though I reside in a world where they are true. Amid doubt and weariness, I live my way into them. So for you, like, what are the differences between faith on one hand and certainty on the other? Well, I mean, I guess as I think about it more and more, um, certainty is is something that feels a little bit out of my control. Um, certainty, at least my subjective certainty about whether something is true. Now, I mean, you know, we can we can get aristotelian here and say that something is certain in itself but it doesn't feel certain to us right but i i I don't i don't have access to to that that world right um i i only know what my subjective um you know like ratings of how possible or or real something seems uh are and i've just found that those fluctuate pretty crazily you know um if i've 
if I've been having a, a really lousy day and the news is really terrible and, uh, you know, I, a bunch of, a bunch of my hair falls out in the, in the morning and I'm like, Ugh, yuck, I'm getting old. Uh, then, you know, the resurrection of the body doesn't necessarily seem that real at those moments. Um, and you know, at other times I think, you know, why not? The world is a, a crazy place. <laughs> um, but if your life is going to have any kind of shape to it at all, you know, your, your commitments can't ebb and flow as much as, as your like moods do. Right. You, you know, you have to, you have to kind of back a horse eventually. <laughs> um, and I find Christianity to be the most, you know, compelling story that, uh, anybody's offered me. And, you know, I've, I'm, reasonably familiar with the the stories that are that are out there um and so i've I've chosen to to stick with that one it reminds me of the way you talk about the sense of like your your moods ebbing and flowing and your commitments you don't want to be kind of too closely yoked to your moods or you wouldn't they wouldn't yeah. really be commitments at all there's a quote from uh the the great jesuit activist poet dan berrigan who died a few years ago um mm -hmm. who said faith where does faith he's asked where does faith reside and he said it's not like in your head or your heart but faith is where your ass is at uh like about <laughs> uh, like about your commitments um and there's a great essayist ronald rollheiser who's a, a priest who talks about that and then like connects it to the gut the sense of like even when i'm not feeling it or like i it's hard for me to like make intellectual sense of it like and I even had this in college, you know, like I, I had this crisis of faith, but I was still showing up to mass every week. There was something that was mm -hmm. like drawing me there, even though I, I couldn't tell you why that there was something like mm -hmm. at this level I couldn't describe. Does that resonate with you? At yeah. All? Yeah. And, and part of what keeps your ass showing up is, uh, you know, you, you can't always, it doesn't always, I, I guess if it is actually true that God exists, that it's impossible not to be seeing God in some sense. Uh, but it's certainly possible for God to be right in front of you and for you to not feel as though you are seeing God. Uh, and I think at, at sort of the, the times when your faith is a little more dry, um, one of the ways that you can see God is in the example of other people who are also sort of, um, you know, putting their asses in, in very good places as, as Dan Berrigan did, you know, it's, it's the, like the witness of other people, uh, that, that allows you to kind of keep, keep going through the motions until, um, your feelings catch up again. Yeah, no, I that's I like saints for that reason, or like whether they're like you know canonized saints or living saints or or others. Like if there are days in which if I'm not feeling it, and I know that well, okay, if it's Dan Berrigan or it's uh, you know Pope Francis on some days, or like other like writers who I really respect, or um, just other people I know, like my wife, you know, like I want to be yeah. that where that person is. Like, yeah, if that, if that means kind of faking it until I make it, then like I, I want to show up. I want to be there. Yeah, Marilyn Robinson has a sentence in, um, I think it's in her essay, "Facing Reality" from from the Death of Adam, where she says uh, something like, "I would rather follow," um, and then she lists a bunch of people. It's like Martin Luther King, Angelina Weld, Grimke. Um, 
man, I forget who the other ones are. <laughs> uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer is one of them. Uh, I would rather, I would gladly follow, you know, these people anywhere, even to mirror oblivion, which, you know, yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's part of the reason I love the communion of saints, you know, those who are canonized and others who are living or have died, but have not been canonized or people like my wife, uh, that like, even if I'm not feeling it, there are people who, yeah, like, I want to be where they are. And so they kind of keep each other going that way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's a, there's something that Marilyn Robinson says in one of the essays in, um, the death of Adam, which is a, a book that's been you know, a huge influence on me. I've read it at least a half dozen times and I've, I've kind of unintentionally memorized parts of it just from rereading it so much. But hmm. um, it, it, I think it's in the, the third essay in that book, which is called Facing Reality. She says something like, I, I would gladly follow Martin Luther King, Angelina Weld Grimke, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and, and there's like one other person she mentions, uh, might be Dorothy Day, I can't remember. But anyway, <laughs> she, says, she says, I would gladly follow these people uh, anywhere, even into mere extinction, which, you know, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I have anything to add to that, except that it, I agree. Right. When I read you kind of talk about like this sense of the lack of certainty and that how faith and certainty are you know are not synonyms. My, one of my favorite writers like on this is, is actually is Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger. I remember reading his introduction to Christianity, like some of it for a class in college, like after he had been Pope and was like referred to as like the Rottweiler and like thought of him as like this kind of a combative bulldog of certainty. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But like his early writing is like really beautiful. And he's right like on doubt and faith. And he, you know, writes about like the believer and the atheists like having common, like that they each in their own way, he writes like share doubt and belief. They do not hide away from themselves and from the truth of their being. Yeah. That's uh, the thing. I know that if I, um, if I were any of, you know, several varieties of atheists that I've thought about being, I, I would still poke holes in it for myself. You know, uh, if I were a kind of, um, existentialist with Christian ethical leanings, I'd poke holes in that for myself. If, um, if I were a Buddhist, which is just not really an option for me because I hate meditating so much. Um, but even if I were, I would, you know, I would poke holes in that for myself. Like, you know, I, I just, that's my disposition. Yeah. He, in, in that same, like, section of the book, like uh, Ratzinger uses like the story from Martin Buber. It talks about, I, I don't know if it's a real, I don't think it's a true story, a kind of a fable of like an enlightenment informed person who goes around like trying to convince people uh, that their faith is wrong, you know, like a Richard Dawkins type, I guess. But um, it comes to this rabbi and then like the rabbi is like walking around the hallway with a book and then just looks up at him and says, well, perhaps it is true. And that like the perhaps kind of stops this person in his tracks who was like ready for a fight but the like that that perhaps which i th i don't know there's like a humility in that i think even from someone who is seen as oh this rabbi they must have it all figured out but the sense of like kind of approaching all of these things like with their shoes off like in a kind of humble yeah yeah way yeah um, my my hope is that god has it all figured out because <laughs> I, I certainly do not and i think you also hit on another like a really big trend 
in like contemporary like Christian thinking, especially like coming from uh, like some sociological work on like young Catholics in particular. And I don't know if you've heard this like phrase in your own writing is like therapy, like thera moralistic therapeutic deism to kind of describe like the faith of young people or how a lot of people kind of see God today, like moralistic, like kind of tells me what's right and wrong and like therapeutic to make, like make me feel better. And then deism, like at this remove from, from the world. And like, hopefully if I'm good, I'll like see God in, in heaven. And you have this again line. I think that also connects to the sense of um, our commitments and our moods. Uh, when you say that, um, I don't want to abandon Christ because he occasionally fails to act as my personal mood improver. Um, <laughs> yeah. And which again, I think sometimes we can reduce like, well, I'm, I'm not doing well, God, like why not like make me feel better. Um, so like who is Christ to you if he's not your personal mood improver? Yeah. I mean, I, I think if Christianity is true, it's true. Like eschatologically, like Christ, like we live in an already not yet, uh, tension. Um, Christ somehow, uh, you know, by, by this, this combination of, of like just insane humility, uh, and, uh, charity for other people that, that you know, that would, that would kind of say, um, I'm uh, not only am I going to die for you, but before I die for you, I'm, I'm going to like, I'm going to deal with all the inconvenience of being a baby, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I am going to be incontinent for several years. Uh, I am, I am going to, I am going to live uh, as as a, a a colonized person in a in a kind of backwater of the Roman Empire. I'm going to be, I'm going to be bossed around by these uh, arrogant Roman jerks. Um, <laughs> like there, there's just so much humility all the, all the way down. Uh, if, if, if Christ is God in like everything Christ did, um, that, yeah, that somehow the combination of, of, of that and, um, just the, the absoluteness of, of love for us that God is, is demonstrating in, in becoming incarnate in Christ. Somehow that has, has defeated evil in some final sense that we are not seeing that God in Christ has reconciled all things to himself um, here and now. But um, if Christianity is true, then, then somehow there is some sense in which that is, is the case um, and, and, you know, we'll understand it better by and by, <laughs> you know, I mean, literally <laughs> that's, um, you know, it's a, it's a, my faith is kind of a crossing my fingers and, and seeing if, if, if that turns out to be the case kind of faith. The way you write about faith in the essay and also like some of the arguments you take on, okay, faith is. Uh, provider of certainty in an uncertain world. And you say, well, no, not at least not the way that you see it or many believers would. Um, or like that faith and science don't go together. Or that science could be a substitute for it. I think you, you kind of take that on as well. It feels to me like you're writing for largely for an audience of not believers. And I'm curious for you, like as someone in academia, like in a secular setting, um, do you find that you have to 
you you meet people who think of like your your faith as like oh that's kind of like an interesting idiosyncrasy about Phil. Um, <laughs> Or do you like do you get you don't you don't write in any kind of defensive way? So there's no I don't see defensiveness there. But like, is that something that like you have multiple parts of your identity that you feel like you have to work to integrate or hold together? Or do you feel tempted to just be like apologizing all the time? Like, I'm curious for you, like, um, yeah, what yeah, you like to be in the world you're in. Um, I I used to I I've I've never felt the temptation to apologize all the time. Um, not not because I think Christians are are so great, but because I think um yeah like i you know if if it was a matter of like apologizing all the time on behalf of christians the like sociological group then i might you know because we suck (laughs) and if it was a matter of apologizing on behalf of me all the time i i might do that too but i just think that you know uh, to expect people to be able to distinguish between you know, like, like in a religion of 2 billion people to, to understand that there's multiple strains. Um, and, and also that, um, every principle can be lived in ways that are insane. You know, like, I, I I don't think it's too much to expect, uh, non-Christians, uh, who, who think for a living to, to be able to make those kinds of easy distinctions in the same way, that if I meet somebody who's a Marxist, I don't assume that they're like, you know, therefore a supporter of like every Stalinist atrocity, you know, like, like, come on, we're used to making these distinctions. So yeah, I don't, I definitely don't live in a like place of constantly defending myself or explaining myself necessarily. Well, maybe explaining myself. Yeah. Um, cause I, I, I work in a, in a pluralistic environment. And so, um, you know, there are questions that I hear more than once, um, <laughs> you know, and, and so I do get, I do get used to, to responding to those, but I don't mind explaining myself. Um, mm. <clears throat> but, uh, let's see. Okay. You were, you were, you were asking like a good and interesting question and I, I kind of narrowed it. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, like, and you, I'm also curious about like this question in the context of your own faith. And you write in the second essay on how to be religious about your own background, uh, kind of growing up as a as a fundamentalist Christian, fundamentalist Christian family, and then um, having to kind of coming at your faith in a d- different way and landing in a different place from from that. Um, and so, I think there. There is some too, like part of your own, there's like your own story and then people you're interacting with. And um, and that is one thing I find about your writing uh, interesting, like the way you're able to kind of write, I don't know if you call them personal essays, there's, you have, there's some memoir-ish style stuff in there, but also engaging with ideas and other thinkers and um, putting it all together in a way that doesn't just feel like a navel gazing memoir but is yeah i i I think about the i think about the way i write essays is basically like this is what the personal essay sounds like if you've just if you just spend way too much of your life reading you know (laughs) because your internal monologue and and instead of thinking about oh yes that was the that was the spring that i always went to this one club and and then i took a trip to turkey and uh, i had a 
intense fling with a barista you know instead of having cool stories like that i instead have stories about how well i read this book and it made me feel this way but then i read this other book and i realized that the first book had been wrong like i just don't have any cool stories so instead you get these like sweeping disquisitions on intellectual and cultural history um so if that helps you kind of place them as far as genre that that's how i think about them (laughs) um so i I do want to ask you about in your craft and then teaching other people how to write um what that's been like especially like in the past year um kind of since like the growth of large language models yeah Um, so this is yeah a pivot a little bit, but I am, I am curious uh, about that. I know you, I've read different things online about what does it mean to be someone who is writing? What does yeah. it mean to be some for you clearly like searching for like meaning in your life and like wanting to live well. And I'm sure part of the teaching is like teaching like, Hey, like by through like a life of reading and writing and work for justice and, and any other stuff that like, um, yeah, yeah. You, yeah. You can hopefully live a good life or, you know, to t- take use of this time, make use of the time. Um, so yeah, curious for you, like what it's been like to in this time to be to be a teacher. Yeah, um, I'm I'm not worried about like large language models making serious writing redundant because those I do not think that those stupid machines will ever be able to produce anything that people who actually like reading, like looking at the words on the page and thinking about them. I don't I don't think LLMs are ever going to produce anything that that audience uh wants. Um but it has definitely shaken up my teaching and I'm I'm still kind of finding my feet a little bit. Um I mean practically it meant that I have had to change a lot of my prompts. I've had to make like like for kind of daily assignments, I've had to make them either so so hard that like you, you couldn't effectively like do this with a, a chat GPT type thing or so easy that it's not worth it. Um, and so that's forced me to think about the purpose of each daily assignment. Like, you know, if, if this assignment was just kind of a thing to prompt my students to make sure that they have stuff to say when it's time to discuss, then, you know, make those really easy so they aren't tempted to cheat, you know, uh, and, when it comes to the big papers, like ask for even more specificity and more intellectual sophistication. But I, I also find that, um, and, and whether this is the right answer or, or even the answer I'll stick with, I, I, I genuinely don't know. I'm, I'm open to having my mind changed by um, like pedagogical research here, but I am, embracing for now the identity of like very high-minded um close reading great books guy (laughs) a little bit um because i i feel like that is a part of writing instruction that can't really be reduced to like that that can't be made into a kind of machine interaction and i do think that seriously immersing yourself in and having real conversations with other people about difficult and interesting texts. Uh, yeah, I feel, I feel like that's the part that you, you just can't automate. And that also is a huge part of any writer's apprenticeship. 
Um, so I find myself just doubling down on on that, um, which is already a, a lot of what I was doing. I, I've, I've, I guess I've always kind of taught writing on the theory that uh, a writer is a reader moved to emulation, as I think Saul Bellow was supposed to have said. Um, and so, yeah, we just we just spend a lot of time like I I give them some I give them some poem that I know will be a little bit ahead of them and that is frankly a little bit ahead of me uh, in terms of like how 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 much of a grasp I have on what it's doing and then we talk about you know what's what what lines jump out at us what do we see going on here. Um, when we hit difficulty, which we do pretty quickly, I, I ask my students to try to describe like fairly and without casting aspersions, like what is difficult about the text? Because I think that's often a source of like insight into what a text is doing. Like why is John Ashbery so hard to read? Well, partly it's because uh, his use of pronouns is, is very blurry. It, you, you know, you get the feeling that the I and the he uh, and, you know, and the they in a poem might actually be the same consciousness. Like, why would he do that? Well, you know, once you ask that question, not only do you start to understand Ashbery better, but you start to understand the possibilities of what can be done with language better. Um, so, I, I, yeah, I do feel like if I can get them to enjoy like carefully reading that a lot of the rest of it will kind of will kind of, will kind of come with that and i've also found my without really planning it i you know or, or even necessarily building it into my teaching materials that much i just find myself very openly saying that I want them to have rich intellectual lives that in addition to whatever stuff it says on the rubric um, and, and whatever the like committee uh, agreed upon learning goals of the course are, which, you know, like, yeah, I, I follow those too, but it, over and above all that, um, even if I'm not being technically paid to worry about whether they have rich intellectual lives. I want them to have rich intellectual lives because they're human beings <laughs> and I, I want them to live fully into their humanity. And I just find myself saying that openly more often hmm. because, you know, when you ask yourself, well, why, um, why learn to use words carefully when you can just make a stupid computer, write a stupid report that nobody's going to read anyway. And, um, you know, like, why not just do that? You know, what is left of writing once the computers can handle that part? Well, it's 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 the part that actually has to do with <laughs> whether you're you're having an interesting uh, interior life or not. <laughs> so let's just be honest that that's what we're doing. Yeah, and I can imagine like I don't know you're working too with students, and I think of myself like too in this way like like the grade is very important. Like the letter we was like, that will help me graduate toward the top of a class and I can put on a resume that I can get a job. We kind of are in this industrial complex of education where like that seems <laughs> to be like the, the goal, at least even I felt that is like, and I can see how it would be super tempting for me. Like even as a student now, like, okay, I'm not going to have it write the paper, but maybe I could have it like give me some, this is start by like having it give me like asking it for like a couple of points or to do some research for me about like other like secondary texts or like um, 
summarize some things, outline, give me an outline, and then I'll, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, I just feel well, like the I nice, feel that pressure. The convenient thing there, um, and I can say this to them, and I, and I do whenever it comes up, is that in terms of suggesting sources, I mean, chat GPT will like make up sources. <laughs> so like you actually, and, and it's, it's pretty good at that too. Like chat GPT is a pretty decent parodist. Like it can come up with things that sound like names of papers that like, like if you feed it someone's CV, it can come up with something that sounds like the kind of like <laughs> academic article they would write. But like it, it, it generates stuff that's not true <laughs> and articles that don't exist so you actually that that you don't want to use it for um and, and as as far as using chat gpt to outline i just i mean i don't know i the the advice that i give them at least on writing argumentative essays is to imagine a, that you're arguing with somebody who thinks your thesis is wrong what's the first thing they need to understand What's the second thing they need to understand? Okay, well, what questions are they having now? I feel like if I can draw them into doing that kind of thing in conference, then, you know, once those mental processes are engaged, um, you know, human human beings like to win arguments. Hmm. I, feel, I feel like if I can appeal to that natural desire <laughs> to win arguments, um, then, you know, like maybe I can trust that their engagement with, with that will, will just sort of take over um, and, and they'll just almost forget that that tool exists. Hmm. That's a hope. So I, <laughs> yeah, no, I can, again, that's, it feels like an uphill battle, especially again, if you're with students who like don't want to be there or have other yeah. interests. Um, but that hopefully, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting just like well, so the, early the, on. Right. The truth is it's always been an uphill battle. And I've mm. always relished the challenge part of it. Like, I've always felt like, you know, yeah, a lot of my students are going to be nurses and engineers. And mm. I might be the last humanities teacher that they see for like a few years or, or maybe ever. And how can I put together a course that will give them like enough to be going on with in life? And also, how can I put together a course that will show them that they're more interested in this stuff than they think they are? Hmm. And maybe that they're, they have more of a knack for it than they think they do. Sure. Um, I've, I've always, I mean, I don't know how successful I am at that. If, if some funding body wants to come along and like help me do some sort of longitudinal study of all my students, uh, you know, go go find every one of them and you know have i um have i actually done a good job or not i it would be amazing to have that information um as it is i I just have what they tell me which is is pretty encouraging but you know they could just be being polite but but it is definitely true that i have always relished the challenge of of teaching a class that not everybody wants to take um i've always taken it as like yeah, you think you don't want to take this class, but actually, uh, I'm going to improve your life, sucker. <laughs> you know. So I guess e- even though ChatGPT presents new problems, um, and and you know, I mean, yeah, it makes it makes me mad. <laughs> like the callousness of these Silicon Valley idiots, like makes me mad. It's always made me mad. You know, I was mad about them ten years ago. Um, yeah, it's still it's it 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 doesn't feel like it's transformed the, my job 
into something that I don't recognize uh, because I've always, I've always had to fight that apathy uh, and I like fighting that apathy. Hmm. To turn to like something else that I think has an impact clearly on teaching, writing, the life you're living, like these these forces that you're contending with, social media, like the, the media that we're in is one. And the other day I was looking for you on um, Twitter, what still I call Twitter, uh, and then I saw you were no longer there. And then I got curious about that because I thought of you, you know, it was pretty, you know, you were there, could usually find you there with something to say or, or share. <laughs> You were so reliably at the worst place you were... in the world. <laughs> well, if, I I mean, it was... tr- if I can't trust Phil Christman to to be wasting his life on on this terrible site, then uh, what what can I believe in? Well, I mean, I haven't <laughs> yeah, been able yeah. to quit it myself, and I've wanted to, but like it, there yeah. are, I have like met really interesting people. I know there, and I like know. read things that I wouldn't have come across otherwise. And like as like someone who I like the kind of fire hose of stuff, nothing's been able. To replace yeah. it but like it's definitely uh awful and i worry about what it's doing to my brain and my marriage yeah. and like so I, there are like <laughs> so i just am curious about like what was your relation i know you've written some about this but like what was your kind of relationship there why do we like want it was a place for writers to share their stuff right yeah. and to get their thing out there which doesn't seem to work that much in some ways anyway yeah. most people yeah anyway so like why, why do i like like it so much why did you like it when you did why did you get yeah. off when you got off what why do we want a replacement are there any possible yeah anyway what do you yeah, what are I your mean, thoughts on this well yeah twitter like i'm i wonder whether social networking on the internet is is a net good at all but um to the extent that it ever is or might be i mean twitter was the best one for quite a while, I think, especially if you're a word person, um, I face, I can't, I can't remember the last time I enjoyed Facebook and I, I nuked my Facebook during the pandemic because, you know, I was either going to spend the rest of my life, like angrily f- fighting with, um, people I used to really like who, who's, whose brains got cooked, <laughs> um, <laughs> by social isolation and, you know, who think, uh, you know, Bill Gates puts his beast mark on you if you take the vaccine, you know. Um, I was either going to do that uh, or, you know, I, I could nuke my Facebook. So I, I finally did. Um, but Twitter Twitter was more fun than Facebook because it was a place, um, this is, someone else said this once, and I don't remember who, but I think they were right. It was a place where you discovered interesting and sympathetic strangers rather than you know, as on Facebook, you know, discovering how people you really like or were close to or are related to um, have, um, you know, maybe three of the six building blocks of fascism in their system, <laughs> you know. Um, and I mean, Twitter introduced me to whole new like modes of discourse that I, I think in, in, in certain writers' hands actually did get raised to the level of like a minor art form uh i i tell my creative writing students that like if you're thinking about english language lyric poetry the last 20 years like you've gotta reckon with drill and i'm not i'm not remotely kidding (laughs) if poetry is highly charged language um drills typos are so artful and so like you know, the, where he misplaces a semicolon 
will conjure up a completely different version of the drill persona from one tweet to another. I mean, there's just so much like beneath the surface <laughs> calculation going on there. It's incredible. Um, I, there, I, there are as many lines of drill that are burned into my memory as, you know, like John Ashbery. <laughs> um, and Patricia Lockwood, I mean, to, to give another example. So, yeah, I mean, they're, 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 the reason you, you like it is partly that there is, po- or, or historically has, has been positive, you know, there have been positive goods there along with, with all the garbage. Um, for me, the, the breaking point was the, uh, I, I don't even want to get too much into the details of this because I don't want anybody to Google about this and have their, like have injury done to their <laughs> souls. <laughs> but um, one night I logged on to blue sky uh, when, when there was like almost nobody on it and it was really still boring. Um, but I logged on and, and people were talking about the fact that uh, on the other site, as, as we archly call it over there, uh, Musk had Elon Musk had, had reinstated a user who had posted uh, apparently a still image from some, uh, video of, of child sexual abuse that the, uh, frequents among the people who circulate that kind of stuff. Um, and, and this, yeah, th- this person had been automatically banned as should happen in any such case <laughs> universally and, and Musk had reinstated them. And th- that it just gave me this overwhelming sense of the the creeps like the icks um i i just was i i felt like deep existential horror i I felt like when you walk out of the movie hereditary like or like when you watch the exorcist like that's the level of just horrified that i thought i just you know I, i deactivated like pretty much immediately because i just didn't i i i I don't like existing in the same world with that stuff. And, and I definitely don't want to be somewhere where I might see even, you know, a, like the most censored possible image of such a thing. Um, and, and everything that's happened since then has, has confirmed that decision for me. I mean, apparently uh, if you're, I'm told that if you're still using Twitter, it's hard to avoid footage of, of last weekend's atrocities, which I don't think it's I don't think it's good to to view atrocity footage if you're if you're not if you don't have an investigative role. <laughs> um, I, I don't. Uh, I'm I'm with the media ecologists on this one. I I think I think that training your nervous system for you to sit still while you witness like actual human suffering and death. That's just it's not good. It's just not good for you. Uh, I I. I get a kind of horror from that um so that that got really that was a really depressing answer to your question (laughs) no i mean i think there's like there comes a time like for us like even me professionally so like i kind of stay on personally i justify it by well like it's for my work which is like partially true though out of our team of five i'm like the only one who like posts in my own personal life i think everyone else who's here like sees like, eh, maybe I don't need this now. And like, there was always like that move, like, hey, like, this is where people are. We're like evangelizing. We want to connect people with good stuff. So we're going to be there. But there becomes that, there is that point where it's like, you know, it's, yeah, I, I it's think it's not like a, it's not a neutral place. It's not a neutral tool. It's not like a playground the same way. It's, it's something well, else and, going and on there. I also think that, 
I mean, yeah. So for me, the tipping point for that you're describing happened a, a while ago. I mean, for some people, it happened a few years ago, um, or it happened right when Musk acquired it. And for me, you know, I've, I've I've described what my tipping point was, but I also think the other tipping point, which is where you don't have to you don't have to keep being there for for professional or career reasons because uh you know maybe maybe blue sky isn't going to get you the same traffic boost but twitter is also not giving the same traffic boost that it used to um it, it just there i actually somebody released a study on this uh just recently that like npr had to get right. off of there a while ago and and it turns out it was it was not really moving the needle for them that much. No, I, I will right, say yeah. too, like Substackers have have had to have a conversation about this in recent months because Elon hates us, and <laughs> keeps he's shadow banning our content. <laughs> um, man, I sound like such a nerd right now. My my Substack has not seen a like any kind of decline in subscriptions, which I actually anticipated would happen. Hmm. Um, it it maybe they're maybe there has been less growth than there otherwise would have been. Uh, that's in a, another possible universe that I, I don't know about, but um, it, it has not hurt me. Hmm. Okay. So I want to ask you one more question um, that is hopefully not as um, sad, I guess. I don't know. Um, give you just a chance to talk about, I think another thing you write very well about and clearly has had a big impact on your life is, is music pop music, rock music, uh, from all kinds of different eras and genres. And you describe it, I think even in one, your essay on fundamentalism as like you know, a source of mystical or almost mystical experience for you, experience of grace. Um, yeah. What, what about music in particular as a, an art form, uh, captures your imagination or get, or, you know, makes you particularly interested or, or coming back? Cause I, I share in that and I, and I wonder, yeah. Why? Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't know really. I mean, if I had a, if I had a pithy answer to that question, like I, man, I, I, I would, that would be proof of some sort of like Thomas Merton level spiritual <laughs> genius and penetration on my part. Um, I'm really not sure. I mean, it is, it is partly that at least, you know, I'm, uh, I'm I'm not a classical music guy, and I mean that not in the sense that I ignore or don't care about classical music, but in the fact, but in the sense that classical music is something that I always engage with, conscious that it is it is work, and that's not a put down to that art form. I mean, it's work when I go to the gym, but it's work that I sought out and enjoyed, and I mean work in the same way. Um, the the music that i tend to wax mystical about tends to tends to be sort of like arty variations on the three minute pop song uh i mean really it's uh the you know what's emotional home base for me is proto uh proto punk punk and and early post punk um those are those are the bands i've i've just come back to over and over and over again throughout my life um and I mean, part of it is that that is a very full and rich emotional experience that can achieve a pretty high level of aesthetic complexity, just in the sense that there's like 12 things going on in a Kate Bush song at any given moment, but it's also like very sensually overwhelming and it's over very fast. 
Um, so maybe there's something about the, the fleetingness of, of our most intense experiences, you know, this is somehow the form matches the way that your most intense experiences kind of exist in your memory. Um, that it's, it's just like running up that hill by Kate Bush. It's just this in, incredibly overwhelming five minutes um, <clears throat> where, you know, you, you realize for the first time that you're in love with someone or you, you feel very aware of God's presence or you, you feel the awareness that you're in the, in the presence of some kind of moral or political greatness. Um, you know, that's an experience that the body can't sustain for very long. Um, and like the overwhelming experience of, of listening to, you know, running up that hill or, or hounds of love or, like any of the tracks on Purple Rain or any of the tracks on Station to Station or Joy Division's Closer, Talking Heads Remain in Light or the, This Mortal Coil's It'll End in Tears. Um, you know, it's, it's just similar to that in terms of the intensity and duration. Uh, I mean, I wonder if that has something to do with it. Um, and it's also really easy to kind of mythologize music, especially of, of that era. Um, because it's before the era of social media. So there's, there is lots of info. There's more than enough information about all of these artists to kind of like have certain anecdotes about them that are, have come to be charged with meaning over the years, but it's not the full panopticon that the social media era is. So there's also still some mystery about them. Hmm. Um, I, I think that's probably part of it that, you know, um, <clears throat> there 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 aren't there weren't subreddits at the at the time you know devoted to speculating about uh whether johnny rotten had a secret sexual identity that he wasn't telling us about in the way that there actually are with taylor swift you know i I don't know yeah do you think your interest in like the the short kind of intense form of a pop song is connected at all to like your kind of like your short essay as like a a main mode for you like do you see those things oh connected i i hadn't i hadn't thought of them that way um i get i get worried that my essays are too long and boring so i actually feel really good about that comparison um (laughs) i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna adopt that as the explanation (laughs) going forward but it's i don't want to waste people's time you know Mm. I, there are certain pop songs that have the quality of, like, you, you know, you get this lightning fast introduction, and then the singer comes in with like this totally overwhelming attack, and they say exactly what they need to say, and then they disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have always loved something about that. I mean, you know, good punk rock of which there there was never very much, but you know what there was um, is is incredible for that. Well, I think that's a good enough place to stop for now. So Phil Christmas, thank you so much for taking the time and for going down all kinds of different paths. Um, And again, we'll make sure we link folks to your your Substack and uh, your books. And um, anything else you want to plug before I let you go? Uh, No, no. The Substack and the books is is pretty much all all I have to plug. But uh, thank you very much. It's an honor. Oh, yeah. No, it's been a lot of fun.
AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach. Our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation with the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to AMDG on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. Thank you.